The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. Before we start this week's episode, I want to share a brief disclaimer. Throughout our discussion today, you're going to hear myself and our guest use the terms American Indian, Indian, and Indigenous American. While the term Native American has long been used in the United States to refer to these groups, it's actually fallen out of favor, according to the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. Instead, these groups now prefer to be referred to by their specific tribal name, when possible, or by the terms American Indian, Indian, or Indigenous American. So we will honor those terms whenever possible in our conversation. We hope you enjoy this episode. American patriotism is rooted in being the victors of the Revolutionary War. We talk about the Revolution as an example of our national resilience in the face of tyranny and use the success of the Rebellion as a rallying cry against the forces that threaten our increasingly divided ideals today. But the American Revolution is not a tale with a simple happy ending. Indeed, America and its democracy were forged during and after those years of revolution, but it was also founded with institutions and prejudices in place that will make the next chapter of this nation's history a dark one for many communities, including the American Indian. These indigenous communities already had centuries of history embedded in this soil before Europeans arrived on their shores. But the 18th century will bring a wave of change to those who called North Carolina their home. As settlement swept the New World and eventually embroiled it in war, it will be tribes like the Cape Fear Indians, the Cherokee, and the Tuscarora who repeatedly paid the price for someone else's progress. Hello and welcome to Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Bergwin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Bergwin Wright Presents 
we are exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander. The historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon and the Stars series that adapted it for television. The story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie. Together, the Frasers land in the American colonies and North Carolina on the eve of the Revolutionary War and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. This week on the show, we're stepping back from our look at Scottish Highlanders in the colonies to focus on another group that found itself at the mercy of revolution in the 1700s, the American Indian. In the Outlander series, readers and viewers have seen Jamie and Claire's interactions with the indigenous people of North Carolina who were uprooted by the arrival of European settlers. At first, they clash with them as they move west to make a home in the colony's mountains. But as the series continued, they have come to understand the struggle of the American Indian communities and what they faced as their lands were ripped from them and inhabited by outsiders. In recent seasons, they've worked alongside them and even seen some of their loved ones join them. But with the foresight from the future that comes with Claire's time traveling, the series has also been able to acknowledge that this turning point in history, when America went to war for its independence, didn't exactly open doors to a bright future for Indian tribes, but rather shrank their space in the world even more. Scottish Highlanders were cleared from their ancestral lands before moving to the colonies, but they were able to find a home, albeit through strife and struggle, in a burgeoning America. Native communities won't be so lucky, as they watch their world contract without many places to go. What happens to these communities as an invading force takes over their homeland? And what role will Native people play in the war that will determine their future? Those are the questions we're going to answer today on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Episode 9, The American Indian and the Revolution. To talk about the role of American Indians in the divided colony of North Carolina and the ensuing American Revolution, I'm joined today by Dr. David Levere, a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and author of such books as The Tuscarora War, Indians, Settlers, and the Fight for the Carolina Colonies. David, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for uh, letting me be here. Now, a lot of our listeners do watch and read the Outlander series, and if they do, they've seen the colony of North Carolina as a settled place, or at least a place that is developing with settlers, and really a melting pot of people from all over the world. But before we jump into that moment in history, which is really the mid-1700s to the uh, late 1700s, I want to take a moment and talk about what came before. 
because before there are English settlements in North Carolina, we have a piece of land that is rich with native tribes. And so who would have been here in the Cape Fear region and across the colony of North Carolina before English settlement took hold? Who was here before us? Well, lots of people. I mean, if you think about before that, and the thing about North Carolina is that you have about three different language families. So up at kind of the northeastern part along the coast, up along those upper outer banks up there, uh, would be Algonquian speakers. And those are going to be the people like uh, the Roanokes and Dasumkepioks and the Sikatan. These are the people that will meet the English in the 1580s uh, with the Roanoke expeditions and the Lost Colony. Then just to the west of them are Tuscaroras, Meherans, people like that, that speak an Iroquoian dialect, same as the Cherokees far out into the western part. And then a little bit to the west of them, kind of forming a big horseshoe across North Carolina, would be Suan speakers. And these are people from all the way from Virginia up there, all the way down, Okanichis, all the way down across the Piedmont, uh, Sissipehas down into uh, South Carolina, and then down the kind of the Cape Fear River, or right below the Cape Fear River where you have uh, Wateries and Catawbas, and then all the way down to the, what we call the Cape Fear Indians that lived here when uh, the first European settlers showed up in the area. And so they were Suan speakers. Now, do we know much about these native communities that lived in what will become North Carolina? More than just their languages, which I know you just spoke about, but do we know about their customs and their lives? We do know a lot about them. Again, these were these were farming people. They, they all, even though they spoke different languages and they often warred against each other or raided against each other, they were farming people. They tend to be matrilineal, meaning they trace their descent through their mother's side. When you were born, you were born into your mother's clan. Uh, women were the farmers, growing corn, beans, squash, and older plants. Men raided uh, other peoples uh, for prestige and revenge and various things like that. Uh, they fished, they hunted, uh, and so it was, a, it was a pretty good life here. And lots of them. You, you, you probably had... Uh, at 1492, several hundred thousand people living in North Carolina, all the way from the coast to the Piedmont to the mountains, where the Cherokees would become some of the largest in North Carolina. Them and the Tuscaroras were two of the largest um, nations in North Carolina. And, and people who do watch or read Outlander will see some interaction with uh, the Cherokee. They're going to see some interaction with the, with the Mohawk up in New York. But here in the Cape Fear, uh, you and I have spoken before about the Cape Fear Indians, which are an interesting group of people because they are ones we don't know too, too much about. And when I have spoken about them before through different history projects, people have always questioned why we call them the Cape Fear Indians. Uh, what is the reasoning behind just kind of that simple term instead of a, a specific tribe name? Well, that was the way the English did it back then. They were often, when they came in, they saw Indians living by a river. They just called them by that river's name. Uh, and so we, so there's kind of this chicken or egg. Do they find Indians and kind of, you know, well, this is what the river name must be, the, the Noose River. And so did they call them the Indians the Noose Indians because of the river? Or do they call the river the Noose because of the Indians? But that was a very typical thing for the English back then to find Indian people living along a waterway and just referred to them as 
you know, the type of river in, in this case, the Cape Fear uh, Indian. So in the, the late 1600s, you have several attempted uh, settlements down here toward the mouth of the Cape Fear River. They find these Indians, they find a town by the name of, that they call Neckos, but they call the Indians the Cape Fear, uh, Cape Fear Indians or the Cape Fear River Indians. And they're Suwan speakers in pretty much the same kind of culture that I just spoke about up here. Now, one of the things that we, it's good to know is that the Cape Fear River is kind of a dividing line. So there's really not a whole lot of Indians living right in this area. This kind of divided the more Suwon speakers down in South Carolina from the more Tuscarora Iroquoian speakers to the north. So there's a good area kind of between the Cape Fear River and then north to say the Noose River that's, that's relatively uninhabited. It's mainly a hunting ground for these two groups of people. So there's the Cape Fear Indians more toward the coast living kind of around, I guess, the uh, Carolina Beach area. A little bit further west are the Waccamaws, also uh, Suwon speakers. But that's about it. Uh, that when you when you get here... I'm talking about early on, but then unfortunately, you're going to have these big wars. This the Tuscarora War from 1711 to 1715, and right on the heels of that, um, the uh, the Yamasee War in South Carolina, and a lot of these more southerly uh, Indian are just going to be decimated. And so, by the time you get to the, the 1720s, the the Cape Fear Indians have disappeared have disappeared from the records. So they probably moved in. They've probably gone uh, kind of laying low, uh, mixing in with other Indians coming about. So by the time you get to the middle of the 1700s, there's not a lot of recognized Indians, or at least recognized by the colonial government or the state government in the Cape Fear region. Well, and one thing I, th I think a lot of people will remember, hopefully from their history classes, are some of these clashes. I mean, obviously, there was an attempt to take these lands, to settle lands that were inhabited by Indians at this time. As I mentioned at the beginning, and as you just mentioned, you're, you're very versed. You've worked a lot with the Tuscarora War. Can you kind of explain for our listeners what this was and, and why it was such a big moment in eastern North Carolina? If you recall your North Carolina history in the 1660s, uh, the Lord's proprietors create this colony of Carolina, which included North Carolina and South Carolina. But very quickly they realized that South Carolina had deep water ports and was more prosperous, and North Carolina didn't have any deep water ports and was more poverty stricken, so they kind of separated them. Up here in North Carolina, there's slow movement of people coming and settlers coming in, mainly coming out of Virginia and moving south. And they're starting to meet up with these Indian people that I just spoke about. They're meeting up with the Algonquins, the Roanokes, and people like that, the Shoans, the Meherans, and the Tuscarora. Well, these people are hugging the coastal plain, and as these settlers come in, they want land, and they start kind of squatting on Indian lands. The problem for Indians is that they're facing a lot of other issues at the same time. One is disease. Disease is taking out huge numbers of Indians. In the 1690s, there's this huge uh, smallpox epidemic that just sweeps across the whole southeastern United States and just takes out thousands upon thousands of Indians. The Tuscaroras lose about 3,000 people in, the, in this. So they're, they're cut down tremendously. Other peoples uh, are, are cut down. 
Compounding that is, as Europeans come in and start trading with the Indians, they also they often use alcohol, and alcohol uh, is a great. I mean, it's one of these great trade products that uh, it's addictive. You use it up, and so you need more when you finish it. And all these, the problems that happened with alcohol began to hit these Indians. In fact, John Lawson, one of the great. Uh, North Carolina uh, proponents and explorers and uh, officials says that uh, disease, alcohol, war, and poisoning are the four big killers of Indians uh, up here. And so all these big, uh, these nations are being abused by settlers, their land trying to be taken. So finally, and, and then right down around Newburn in 1709, 1710, they bring in hundreds of German settlers and a few Swiss settlers with Baron de Graffenried, and then they're right on Tuscarora land. And so in 1711, these more southerly, the southern Tuscaroras, the, the core Indians, the Madame Mesquites and others, join together and start this Tuscarora War. And they're, they're, they're able to land a few good blows, but in the end, they're defeated. And uh, they're put on, res I don't want to call them reservations, but they're put on reserves. In this case, these surviving Indians are giving land. For example, the Tuscaroras get the largest reserve up in what's today Bertie County, just north of the Roanoke River, and they get something like 40,000 acres of land. And other Indians get smaller amounts. But by the time you get to about 1715, 1716, in the eastern part of North Carolina, uh, you have about uh, five, six Indian reserves. Their land uh, to live on, and all the other land had to be given up to the colony. Unfortunately, down here in in the Cape Fear region, the Cape Fear Indians did not get any reservation. They were really not much involved in the Tuscarora War, and they disappear by, like I said, by the 1720s, disappear from the records in 1720, 1730. So they don't get a reserve. And so by the time you get to, let's just say, 1720, you have numerous, numerous, about you know, six or seven reserves, land reserves of Indians up north of the Noose River and all the way up to like the, the Virginia border. And then they'll face the settlers and they'll, over time, they'll just begin selling off parts of their reserve, their land reserve, for cash or, or for goods. They, they're going to need it in this new economy. And one thing that people will see on the Outlander TV show is uh, some interaction with the tribes that were kind of isolated in the western part so the Cherokee is one that they're going to interact with what does it look like on the other side of the state as we start to see more development not only on the coast but as it kind of sweeps west like I said in the east most of these most of these Indian nations are either on reserves or selling off and they're dwindling pretty quick out there uh, in the Piedmont, in the southern southern part of the Piedmont, kind of straddling North Carolina and South Carolina, not far from where Charlotte would be, would be the Catawbas. And so they live there. But then a little bit further west out in the mountains are the Cherokees. And they are, by the 17th, the largest, most powerful Indian nation, certainly in North Carolina, but really pretty much in the east. They are going to be, they're formidable for the next 20, 30 years. And so the Cher so uh, your, your settlers, as they move out west, will encounter the Cherokees. And the Cherokees do play a role in the French and Indian War and in the, the American Revolution. So they're a very large, uh, powerful nation. Uh, 
South Carolina and Virginia has trade relations with them. And as the French start moving in, uh, into the Mississippi Valley, the French are going to make overtures to the Cherokees. And the Cherokees span not just North Carolina, but South Carolina, Georgia, parts of Alabama, the eastern part of Tennessee. Uh, Kentucky was a big hunting area. So this is a very large spread out nation with, with numerous towns in all these areas here. So they don't always think alike. And so some might lean toward the French and some might lean toward, toward the English. And there might even be some leaning toward the Spanish in Florida. As we start to get into the mid-1700s and obviously start to, to really ramp up to the revolution, what is life going to be like for these tribes who have been placed on these reserves? I mean, their world has literally shrunk over the past 50 years in, in such a dramatic way. How does it change their lives, change their customs, and make them into the people that these settlers are interacting with? Well, let me say, I would not believe that these settlers on this show are interacting much with Indians in the East. So by the time you get to the 1750s, certainly by the time you get to the 1770s, the, only the Tuscaroras uh, and maybe the, the Shawan still have any reserve lands left. Uh, but it's not going to be long after that that they're going to even lose that. The others on the reserves are just... They're selling off their land and then kind of moving into marginal areas. So you're you're not going to have, you probably wouldn't know. A lot of them are also um, uh, marrying uh, African-Americans, are, are cohabitating. So what's going to happen is that for a lot of these people, by the time you get to the latter part of the 1700s, they're going to be classified as free people of color. Are they going to be lying low, often in swampy areas, the green swamp down around here, the swamps of... Drowning Creek, which is out Robison County. Drowning Creek was an early name for the Lumber River. Uh, and so they're kind of laying low out there. So you're, you're, your settlers aren't going to have much interaction with people in the east. However, out there, the Cherokees aren't on a reserve. They're still an, a nation and a very powerful nation. So as the settlers move further west, they would come in contact with Cherokee people. So that would be where, for this show, most of their action would probably be who they're interacting with. And they do, and, and you see that early clash with, with some, some localized Cherokee, because in the series, as viewers and readers will remember, Governor Tryon gives our main characters, Jamie and Claire, land in the western parts of North Carolina. And when they get there to start to kind of square it off, they start to bump up onto what is Cherokee land. And so that's the type of interaction and that that very uncomfortable, very uneasy blending of people because it seems like the North Carolina government and the King's government are giving away lands that the Cherokee are very much still seeing as their own. And so that's where you see kind of the not-so-easy uh, blending of two two very different groups. Well, this is true. This is, uh, and it's not just among the Cherokees. It's really anything west of the Appalachian Mountains. As uh, before the French and Indian War, and during the French and Indian War, you start having settlers moving over the mountains and squatting on Cherokee lands, but also lands of people in Virginia and what would be West Virginia and on up, moving it, especially like moving into Kentucky, moving into. Uh, Ohio, those areas, and the Indians know that they're wanting their land, and they're, they, 
they don't want to give up their land. So yeah, this is going to be a uh, a problem. So as these characters move out there and settle into the West, they probably are sitting on Cherokee land. Now here's here's an uh, here's a thing. Um, after the French and Indian War, there's an uprising by Indians um, along in the west west of the of the mountains, mainly up in. Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio and, and into Pennsylvania. And the British are able to put this down. And they realize that one of the big problems are these settlers moving on to west of the mountains and settling on Indian land. The other problem is, is land speculators. During this, this still colonial period in the 1750s, 1760s, you have a lot of wealthy American people like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington that are involved in these land schemes. And what they want to do is buy big chunks of land. They're in these land companies out west of the mountains and then later sell it to settlers moving out there. Well, the British see that this is causing Indian problems. These wars are expensive. And England's already heavily in debt from the, uh, from the French and Indian War. And so what England does, uh, Parliament, one of their first, one, the, the proclamation line of 1763, which essentially runs an imaginary line along the crest of the Appalachian Mountains. And what they say, that that's the western boundary of all the colonies. No more of this moving out, no more of this idea of sea-to-sea -sea charters. That's the western boundary. No settler is able to move out past that western line without, being, without approval of uh, the king's bureaucrats. Soldiers will be stationed out there to keep the peace, but this land west of the Appalachian is going to belong to the king's Indian subjects. As for all you people east of it, if you have lands out of it, you got to move back. you got to move to the east. Well, this is one of the first blows of the revolution. This is one of the first things of natural rights of life, liberty, and property. Is that here, you're taking away my property here. You're taking away my liberty to move out there. Why should these Indians profit when me, a, a white settler, I can't go out there? And so this is going to be one of the, the first of the shots formed uh, um, uh, in the Revolutionary War era there. And so many Americans hate the idea that, well, why do the Cherokees and all them get that and we can't go out there? And so that is England trying to put a barrier, trying to put a line between the Indians and the settlers and prevent these costly wars from taking place. Of course, the Americans hate it, and that's going to be one of the things that leads to the revolution. Now, for those who watch or read Outlander, one of the ways the story and its author, Diana Gabaldon, have been able to narratively interact with indigenous tribes is through the character of Ian, who through a series of unfortunate events that we're not going to get into right now, is traded to the Mohawk up in New York. He's a young Scottish Highlander who assimilates with them and takes up a lot of their customs and appearance even. But my question is, did that happen in real life? Were white men ever traded or captured and assimilated into these native tribes and given the chance to learn their culture? Well, Connie, see... Toothy, this kind of thing where a young a young settler is, I assume, captured by Indians and eventually moved up, you would see that much more, say, up north, that kind of in New England and New York, and you do see a lot of that where people are captured, and some of them are what we the term was redeemed, they're redeemed background, but some stay, uh, especially some women, they get up there and they make families and they don't want to return. So yes, it would not be on you, it not be. 
I would say not even an unusual that you might have uh, uh, some uh, white settlers, especially young men, that go and live among the Indians and kind of and kind of take that lifestyle. Believe me, uh, white settlers are much uh, more afraid of people being converted to Indians and Indians being converted to white people, and it does happen. So uh, I guess I would be if he if he was captured down here, I would think more in the earlier part of the 17 and when the Senecas were actually very active down here. And they were part of that five nations. Uh, the Mohawks are much closer to the English settlements there. So there's not many Mohawks down in North Carolina. But still, I, it, it is possible. Now, let me say another thing of this has to do with the Cherokees. Because remember, by seven, 1730 and afterward, there's a tremendous number of South Carolina and Virginia uh, traders uh, uh, Fur trade, you know, they're looking for deer hides and they're trading manufactured goods. And Cherokee country was a long way out there. And so you often have traders living among the Cherokees for months, sometimes years at a time. And they, uh, many of them are Scottish, uh, of Scottish. And so they often marry Cherokee women. And so they produce these uh, bicultural children, a Scottish father and a Cherokee mother. But because of matrilineal, they're automatically a Cherokee uh, uh, they're only a Cherokee citizen and part of the mother's clan. So yes, you have that. You have some traders that just kind of go all in, and you also have their children who, part Cherokee, parting, who could go one way or the other. So it wouldn't be that, it, it would not be unusual. Interesting. I just, I was curious about that, knowing that I was going to speak to you today. Uh, I, that's just been such, so central to the main character's understanding and empathy for uh, Indians, because one of their loved ones has formed a real bond with them, has taken up a lot of their customs, and ended up having a family and a wife and a child who unfortunately died. And so it, it gives them that emotional link to them, and I think it makes them a bit more empathetic, a bit more understanding. And we also have to keep in mind that one of our characters has traveled from the future in this fantasy series we're talking about. And so she knows what is coming in the new America that will be born from the revolution. She knows it's not going to be easy. And so there is a, a bit of empathy in this story for the American Indian experience before, during, and after the revolution, which makes it just an interesting part of this, this larger narrative that we're watching unfold. Now, in more recent episodes, we've seen our main character, Jamie Frazier, serve as an Indian agent. Now, that's going to be in those years right before the revolution. And uh, I was curious, is this a real role that we see here in North Carolina? And what was the purpose? Was it to be kind of a bridge between these kind of far-flung uh, Indian nations, maybe the Cherokee in the West and the king in Britain? Okay, no, there was no such thing as an Indian agent back at that time. Good to know. <laughs> All right. So, like, for example, the colony of North Carolina, if it had and again, we're mainly talking about the East here. If they had issues or the Indians had an issue, they might form a short-lived commission to go out and investigate what's going on. But usually the, the Indian leaders would come and visit with the governor and explain their problem. Uh, and so there was never like an Indian agent set to a, res to a reserve or anything. That doesn't happen until much later and mainly out west. To the Cherokees, there's no Indian agent there either because what you have are these traders who kind of serve in multiple roles. So some of them, they're, they are 
economically, I'm bringing these goods to exchange for deer hides and bear hides, but also they kind of serve as these quasi-diplomats. If the governor has a message he wants, he can send it to these traders. Uh, and so that's often, so he's really no Indian agent per se. That will come much later into the 19th century and mainly dealing um, with, your, with your reservation, where they go from being reserves to being reservations out more like in Oklahoma and in uh, the Dakotas and, and places like that. After the French and Indian War, there weren't agents, but England trying to regulate its empire. And again, it, re it has to regulate this interaction between the Indians and the settlers and vice versa. They don't create agents, but they create departments. They create a southern department, everything south of the Potomac River and everything north of the Potomac River. And so the Southern Department was handed over to first Edmund Aitken, who Aitken who dies soon after, and then it goes is handed over to John Stewart, and he deals with all Indian issues south of Potomac River. Uh, north of that fell to Sir William Johnson, who had married an Iroquois woman, uh, a Mohawk woman. He has uh, strong family relations with the Mohawks. Uh, his uh, his brother-in-law is going to be Chief Joseph Brandt, who will be, a, be given a, a colonel's commission in the British Army during the American Revolution and will be a strong fighter for the British during the Revolution. So if you want to, they're not really agents, they're a department. And so that would, so uh, Johnson and, uh, and then Stewart, they could visit. So they're not really an agent, but they're a department supervisor. So that might be where they came up with the idea of an agent. So not an agent, but there were two departments here that handled Indian relations for the king. As for arming the Cherokees, uh, you bet. Now, once the revolution gets going here, uh, Indians are faced with a choice. Are you going to support the American patriots, as they call themselves? Or are you going to uh, are you going to support the English? And by this time, they almost all—not all—there are some exceptions, but most Indians realize that the English were at least trying to respect. You know, they're trying to create this border. They're trying to to create land, and they're trying to stop these American settlers from taking their land. So when the war starts, most join with the English, or they try to remain neutral. A few in North Carolina uh, do side with the Americans. For example, the few remaining Tuscaroras in North Carolina, you know, they, they quickly, I mean, they just right off the bat, yeah, we're, we're, we, we give our loyalty to this new American colony. But, you know, they don't do much. They're mainly old men and women and a few kids. Uh, the Catawbas out there right on the border of North Carolina, they also go for the Americans. And they'll be, uh, even some of their areas will be burned by the British, but they'll be, you know, they'll get, they'll get a reservation, right? And they'll be seen as, as, as good citizens by the people of South Carolina. And that's, you know, probably a good reason why they're still around. The Cherokees, though, are, are pretty much split. Some want to go with the English, some want to go with the Americans, but among the Cherokees, there is uh, most of it's running against the Americans. And there's uh, one young warrior who uh, makes a name for him. His name is Dragging Canoe, and he will lead attacks against the Americans. He takes the British side. So, yes, the British would certainly try to arm the Cherokees, but then traders have been doing that for years, for, uh, years and years. So, it would not be unusual for them. But, yeah, I would say that the, the English, 
are wanting to arm these Indians as best they can to, to fight these uh, settlers. And that's interesting because one thing we've been talking about for, for many episodes on this podcast now is is how it wasn't so easy a choice to choose a side in the revolution. We think of it as so black and white today, but you really had to think about which side was going to benefit you in the long run. And was there any incentive made by England to kind of court the support of Indians? Was it giving them more or was it just about respecting that border that they had set up to show them, you know, you'll have a place as British subjects in this in this country. England certainly trying to court them and get them on their side, especially up north, like with uh, like Chief Joseph Brandt of the Mohawks. I mean, he is, you know, he's strongly in favor of the English, and he's at a few of the, the Wyoming Valley Massacres, it's called, and the Cherry Valley Massacre. Uh, I mean, he's actually trying to stop massacre, but that was the way, you know, you know, Americans used to scare their kids. If you don't be good, Chief Brant's going to come get you. And uh, he was formidable up here. So, yeah, the English are trying to to court these in. Now, let me also say that many Americans didn't support the American cause. There are many what we call loyalists or Tories that, you know, hey, I don't want to break away from England. I'm an English person. For example, when Paul Revere rides uh, to go down, he doesn't say the English are coming because everyone said, well, we're English. Uh, who's coming? He says the regulars are coming, meaning the army's coming. And so there were many Americans all across the 13 colonies who said, I, I don't want independence. I'm an Englishman. I, my loyalty's to the king. So it was even more, it was even tougher for Americans to decide. I would say it's not as tough for the Indians. I think the Indians really pretty much, unless you were, like I said, unless you were the Tuscaroras over here and you're isolated and you're surrounded by Americans, there's no way you're going. You're not even talking to the English, so you're going to go with the Americans right off the bat. Kind of the same thing with the Catawbas, but the Cherokees way out in their their uh, in their mountains and further west, they you know the English had been out there. That's that's that part of the country that was supposed to be Indian territory. So yes, there. I don't think it's as hard for them as as we think it was. And what is the involvement in uh, Indians in Native people? in the fighting, the actual fighting, because if you are fighting for the British, are they part of these battles that we'll see throughout the, the colonies? I mean, we, we have at least two in North Carolina, Guilford Courthouse, and then here in our area, uh, Moores Creek. I mean, are we going to see Indian involvement in the actual front lines? Not in those battles or anything like that. Now, let me say, you do have Indians attacking, for example, like, again, back to Chief Brant up in uh, New York and New England. There, there's some action up there. Uh, during the uh, uh, British General John Burgoyne's campaign, where he comes down along the Hudson River and the big battle at Saratoga with the Americans, when he does bring Indians down. He has Indians auxiliaries that are that are attacking American settlers and American army uh, out here in North Carolina. You do have Cherokees that attack in along the uh, you know. The word we often use is the frontier, the North Carolina frontier, and many of these settlers head for these, for example, Fort Dobbs out kind of toward Hickory, and there's other, these Fort Defiance out here. These become areas of safety for settlers, and Cherokees do try and attack them, and so there are some actual battles that take place. But for the most part, most Indians are the victims of American attacks. So after Dragging Canoe and his Cherokees make these attacks into North Carolina, the Americans send an expedition from South Carolina. They send General 
Uh, Rutherford from North Carolina into Cherokee country. They send an expedition out of Virginia, and they move into Cherokee country, and they just start burning towns. They burn tremendous numbers of Indian towns, burn cornfields. In fact, this is going to force Dragging Canoe to retreat and actually move into Tennessee, where he forms this, the Chickamaugas. And uh, uh, so, yeah, Indians are just being Cherokee territory just gets torn up by by these uh, by these attacks. Uh, same thing that takes place up in other areas up in the, the northern colony. For example, the Iroquois country. General I mean, Lewis Sullivan is ordered by Washington to go into. Uh, the five nations, well, the six nations the, uh, up there in New York, and he does the same thing. He just tear. They, tear, they burn towns, they burn cabins, they chop down apple trees. They just do everything to they can to the Iroquois to, to bring them to heel. I mean, the Americans use total war. Indians never use total war. Why were Indians bearing the brunt of that total war? Just was it, you know, prejudice? Was it just because they were supporting the British? I mean, why were why were they slashing and burning in Indian communities? A little bit of all that. Uh, uh, for example, yeah, when Dragon Canoe and his warriors attack, I mean, Americans are going to come in heavy as possible and go in there and just smash it. And you know, we'll teach you these. And this is where uh, after this. Cherokees get smart. They realize that going to war against the Americans is, is not the way to go. That you, you're never going to win. And it's after this that the Cherokees make a concerted effort that we're going to start you know, playing the American game. And so this is where they start moving toward this idea of civilization or a culturization. There they're going to start seeing that. Uh, we'll see them at the courthouse instead of the battlefield. And so this is where you start getting Indians saying, Instead of fighting, we, we need to go to court. We need to get lobbyists. We need to we need to start training people to become lawyers, and that's what's going to happen. Wow, I I didn't know that was kind of the tactic, but that is smart because um, they will have seen that total warfare uh, during the revolution. What does the revolution do to these communities, these tribes that have been able to survive all of this development, all of this change that has come in in the 1700s and even late 1600s? Because it sounds like Supporting the British draws the ire of the victors of the revolution. Is that why we see things like the Trail of Tears and so many things that have defined the Indian experience in the United States? Is it because of where they place their support? Yeah, in the long run, that's it. I mean, part of it is all of that. On on one hand, certainly there's a racial aspect to it. I mean, Indians are the big losers of the American Revolution. I mean, even ones like Catawbas that supported the Americans are eventually going to be the big loser. They'll get a reservation, but it's going to be a very small one. The, the Tuscaroras here who, you know, yeah, we, we support, I mean, but they'll eventually have to sell off their land. And uh, in like 1802, when they're accused of, say, fomenting a slave rebellion, that's going to be one of the things that's going to send the last ones up to, or up to, to New York. So even the ones that support the Americans aren't gonna gonna win for long, and of course the ones that that were on the British side are gonna really get. The thing that saves the Cherokees for a while is that they were still very strong, and they lived up in the mountains in that area that were relatively inaccessible. But once you get the cotton gin and a lot of that land down in uh, Alabama and Georgia and Tennessee and places like that becomes really valuable. Well, then they're going to get hit. So then what you have is Americans coming in and making treaties and treaty after treaty. And almost in every treaty, Indians have to give up land. 
and we'll give up this land. Well, we promise the rest of it, it's going to be yours as long as the grass grows, the river flows, and the sky is blue. And then next thing you know, you get a few settlers moving out into Indian land, and the settlers complain, I mean, the Indians complain, and nothing really happens. And pretty soon, more settlers and more settlers, and the Indians are complaining. And finally, the United States steps in and says, well, look, let's sign another treaty. We'll slice off this. But we promise this is, the rest will be yours as long as the grass grows, the river flows, and the sky is blue. And so after that, after the American, and after the Constitution is ratified, you just get treaty after treaty where they're trying to, to uh, uh, slice off Indian land and give it to settlers. And then the Trail of Tears is the biggest land grab, which we're going to, you're going to give up all your land here and we'll give you land in Indian territory, which is, on the maps are called the Great American Desert. Well, I mean, is that the, the ultimate legacy of, of Native people's involvement in the revolution? Because I said at the beginning of this this episode that, you know, as a country, we draw so much patriotism from being the victors of the revolution. But it's a completely different story for these communities. For the Indians, yeah. I mean, it's not a good war. I mean, I guess you can say they picked the wrong side, but they picked the side that was more amenable to them. I mean, I, I guess if Britain would have won, it would have been a different story. But, you know, the Americans won. And to them, Indians were enemies. They had picked the wrong side. Uh, they weren't white. They weren't Christian. And so by fighting the Americans, they had given up all legal recourse. To, uh, and so we can do it. You're a defeated people. We can do with you as we see. Now, they weren't really defeated, but... Like I said, going to war against the Americans was, you know, it, it's a, no one wins. It's a fool's game. All of these, these tribes that we've talked about and all the names you've mentioned, I mean, in North Carolina, how do we get from the revolution to where we are now with the Indian culture? How do you kind of bridge those two moments in history? Well, let me say, let me, let me give you an interesting example that takes place up here in eastern North Carolina with the Shawan Indians. Is that... Um, the Shawan were rapidly dwindling, and you you have a lot of these Indian men in the East that are disappearing, whether they're just moving away or dying. So you have a lot, for example, the Shawan was made up of a lot of Indian women and a lot of children. And after the revolution, these are about the time of the revolution, these remaining Shawan Indians, mainly women, realize that what we really need to do is actually get buy land, where we actually have a receipt. And and so they actually, instead of just having this reserve that had been given to them, which is kind of being dwindled down, they actually buy a good chunk of acreage. They just call it Indian Town up there in the, the Shawan area. And so they live on Indian Town. They have the, the property of it. Well, in 1790, these three white men decide they want to buy Indian Town. And so they're able to convince these Indians to buy a good piece of it. So they buy a good chunk of Indian town. Well, according to the Constitution, you can't make private purchases with Indians. Only the federal government, the national government, has the authority to make any kind of deal, any kind of any kind of relationship with Indians. So it's totally against the Constitution, against it for an individual to buy land from Indians. So this whole thing should have been null and void. Only they came up with a really interesting and novel idea. According to these three men, as they told the, the, the state assembly, is that, well, they're really not Indians anymore. 
all these women and everything, as their Indian men had, had, had intimate relations with nearby African Americans. So as these three men say, they're not really Indians, they're just really a parcel of, you know, Negroes was the term they used, of these African Americans. Therefore, since they're not Indians, we really didn't buy our land from Indians, even though they're saying we're Indians, we're Indians, we're Indian. So we didn't buy the land from Indians, we bought it from black people. And so the state said, oh, well, that's, that's another story then. And so they allow the sale to go through. And pretty soon they'll lose the, other, uh, the, the rest of their land kind of a, the same way. So this whole idea in the East, they're just trying to take these Indians and turn them into free people of color. Out in Cherokee territory, out there, they're, they're, they're trying to keep their lands. And, of course, the government's trying to, to, to take their lands from them. And, again, it will eventually lead to, to the Trail of Tears. Again, it says settlers are moving out over the mountains. And uh, cotton, especially in down south, cotton becomes the poor man's way to get rich. And when you start seeing... Indians are living on good cotton land in Georgia. Georgia wants these Cherokees gone. And so they'll start passing laws. No Indian can testify in court against a white man. Well, then it becomes open season on Indians. You, know, you can't even protect, uh, protect your land from lawsuits because you can't testify. What happens over here in the East, that this, um, the, the uh, Cherokees in North Carolina, is that they've done an interesting thing. They're, according to this... Treaty of Holston of, of 1819, and this is something that later Andrew Jackson really pushes, and his idea is that he gives Indians a choice. If you want to stay in the eastern United States, in your home country, then you have to give up your Indianness, you have to give up your nation, you have to put yourself under the laws of the state that you live in, essentially become a free person of color with whatever. If you want to remain an Indian and keep your nation and be a Cherokee or whatever, then you're going to have to move to Indian Territory, Oklahoma. And so that's the choice given. And so what had happened is that the Indians in North Carolina took the opportunity. After the Treaty of Holston, they secede from the Cherokee Nation. They put themselves under the laws of North Carolina. And so when the Trail of Tears roundup takes place in 1838, 1839, North Carolina tells the army, no, these are our Cherokees. Don't mess with them. They're the Colonel Lefty Cherokees. They're where they're supposed to. So they're not rounded up. Well, others, a little bit further western North Carolina, all others are rounded up and sent over the Trail of Tears. Now, the thing that saved them was that they lived in mountainous areas that wasn't good for cotton growing, that no one saw as any, no white people were wanting it. Believe me, if they lived on good cotton land, they would have been gone a long time ago. And so they got to live there. And then... Fortunately, you actually had some white people like Will Thomas who liked them, who grew up and became a protector, and he began buying up little tracts of land, and that'll eventually form uh, the reservation that the Eastern Band of Cherokees have now out in Cherokee, North Carolina. But it was all, again, you know, taking the Americans up on their offer and a treaty to essentially put themselves under the laws of North Carolina instead of the laws of the Cherokee Nation. Wow. Um, even with all we've talked about today, it's not even scratching the surface of what's going to happen for the American Indians after the Revolutionary War. But I would encourage everyone to pick up David's book, The Tuscarora War. If you're looking for a copy, we actually sell them at the Bergwin Wright House, so you can stop in and get your own. It's sold online, on Amazon, order through your local bookstore. However you want to get it, I highly recommend it. 
And I'm so glad that you were here to talk about this today, David, because this is such an interesting topic to see through the lens of the story that's being told in Outlander, because so much of that is placed on the Scottish Highlander experience. But there is a very interesting parallel. It's not a one for one, but an interesting parallel of the Highland clearances, people being moved off of their land, they find a new home in uh, in the colonies, and then to be alongside of a group that is having that done to them either in mass or in slow motion over time. And so it's interesting to see the two kind of parallel to each other in this story, and I think that it gets people interested in in both of them. Yes, and there was a strong Scottish Highlander presence down here in southeastern North Carolina, especially around Fayetteville area. Scotland County is named after all these Highlanders, which is interesting because they're living very close to an ever-growing Indian population uh, over along the Lumber River called Drowning Creek back then, where, again, you, you, you're starting to have these, these Indians had come from these shattered nations after the Tuscarora and Yamasee War. And then as... The 18th century goes on. You have others from the eastern part, Tuscars, that make their way. If you have a choice, you're going to live among these rather racist settlers, or you can go kind of live down among all these other Indians, or no one's bothering you. You know, so they go. So this this who become the Lumbies become very large, and so right there you have these Indians and these Highland Scots close together. Uh, they probably don't do anything during the Tuscarora, but they'll be arguing a lot afterwards and up through the Civil War. So the uh, the stories that people are seeing on Outlander, they're not uh, they they would have happened in in different forms. They're uh, two different communities that had to find a uh, at least bordering places in North Carolina as a colony. True. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate all this incredible information. I wanted to make sure that we discussed the American Indian experience on the show before we finished our season. So I thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Join us next week for the season finale of this podcast as we look to the next chapter of the Outlander story with a trip to Moores Creek National Battlefield to learn about the Cape Fear's defining revolutionary moment. At the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge in February 1776, Scottish Highlanders will be asked to put everything on the line once again during one of the earliest battles in the American Revolution. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Bergwin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review, which will help more people find the show. Be sure to also follow Bergwin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok for the latest on what we're doing here at the site. This podcast and all the exciting projects we do at the Bergwin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider donating to our mission to further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site by donating at the link in each episode's description or on our website at bergwinwrighthouse.com slash donate and the number one. Thank you so much for supporting us. This podcast was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their support. 
I'll see you next time on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Bergwin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182.